Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, November 19th, this Thursday, is the Great American Smokeout. And why would you want to stop smoking? Well, I'll be honest, these days I can't imagine why you would want to continue smoking. We know that nicotine is an addiction, and we know that a lot of folks out there are still smoking. And so today we're going to talk about a continuum of what happens. We're going to talk first with Dr. Nicholas Nelkin, vascular surgeon at Kaiser Permanente, about the smoking cessation program there and what inspired him to be part of it. And then we're going to talk to Dr. Daniel Allen and Dr. Chris Clem from Queens Medical Center, the Head and Neck Institute, about head and neck cancers and then also about reconstructive surgery. Now, throughout our show today, you can always join us. You're part of this conversation. And we've got phone lines open at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First, we're going to talk with Dr. Nicholas Nelkin, vascular surgeon, about smoking cessation. Now, i got to ask you, you spend all of your time, Dr. Nelkin, in an operating room doing vascular surgery. What got you excited about smoking cessation? Well, it turns out that about 50% of the work that I do is a result of people smoking. So when you smoke, it causes inflammation of the inside of the blood vessels. And over a long period of time, that causes narrowing of the arteries, and that causes a lot of the problems that I deal with. So um, I noted in when I came in 2003 and 2004, I was having a hard time getting my patients into an organized smoking cessation program. I went and uh, complained to the management. They looked at me and they said, well, uh, if you want to do something about it, then do it yourself, which I thought was great advice. And since that time, in the last 10 years, we've completely reorganized our smoking cessation program at Kaiser Permanente. It fits in with many of the different uh, specialties. Smoking affects many different organ systems, and uh, we can talk about that as much as you like. But as far as I'm, um, as I'm involved as a vascular surgeon, it's about half of what I do. So really, we want to put you out of business. Uh, absolutely. I'd love okay. to put myself out of business that way, and then I'd have a job this way. So perfect. Well, absolutely. Then you could do other vascular procedures. But if smoking has such a contributory factor, it sounds like you know that if you smoke, you're going to hurt your blood vessels and you could have serious problems. What are some of those serious problems that you identified made 50% of your practice related to smoking? What kind of surgeries were you doing that got you inspired? Okay. Well, uh, the artery side of things, which is what we're focusing on, and that's where the damage is. Uh, in the aorta, that's the largest blood vessel in the body, the one that lives in the abdomen and in the chest. It can either cause uh, uh, thickening of that that, in fact, uh, causes blockage and makes it difficult to walk and eventually makes it difficult to keep your legs alive. It also causes something called an aneurysm. An aneurysm is an expansion of this blood vessel, and it turns out that the bigger it gets, the more likely it is to burst. If it bursts, um, your chance of survival is not very high. In fact, if it bursts at home, there's about a 75 to 90 percent chance that you won't make it uh, through the operation. So lots of good reasons. So aortic aneurysms we talk about. We talk about narrowing of arteries further down in the legs. People can Correct. get what they call peripheral arterial disease. When, the, when people lose limbs, that's the reason. 
Well, that is uh, indeed the reason. So if you don't have enough blood, I mean, blood is the stuff of life. Blood is what keeps you alive. Blood is what not only um, allows you to bring oxygen to your uh, organs, but it also brings uh, whatever nutrients there are. So without blood, you don't have a limb. So I see a lot That's of blockages. That's pretty good inspiration, I'll tell you. Indeed. So uh, I see a lot of blockages in a lot of limbs. Um, it turns out that uh, if you... Um, stop smoking, your risk of this happening goes down uh, quite a bit. Now, what is the smoking cessation program? There's a whole process. If somebody says, I think I want to quit smoking, or rather if they have enough medical conditions that suggest that they need to start contemplating this, what is the first step? What does this program do that helps them to get to that point? Well, it's important to understand the things that actually work, okay? And if you look at this from a deep data dive, which is the, uh, the way that we like to look at this, and in fact, there's more data about uh, smoke and its problems than almost any other problem in all of medicine. But if you do a deep data dive, what you find out is that medications, and we can talk about what they are in a minute, and counseling, which can be done on the phone or in person, it doesn't really make much difference, that they both work, but they work better together. Uh, the other things that work are increasing uh, uh, prices on cigarettes. Um, the other thing uh, that works is advice from your doctor. And it's funny because there are a tremendous number of things that are touted as smoking cessation aids. Not a lot of them uh, make it to the level of data that these things that I just described do. So the program... Um, what you do, uh, you get into the program, your doctor recommends a medication, and again, we'll talk about which ones are available in just a minute. At that point, they make a connection with the people in the counseling group, and they call you on your cell phone so you don't have to go anywhere, uh, make connections. The first meeting is basically to establish a connection and then say, well, this is, you know, what medicine did you get? Uh, I'd like you to prepare for what we call the quit date. On the quit date, then they call you back, and this is the day that you plan on stopping. Uh, at that time, you engage and uh, get uh, other advice, and then we call you one to two more times after that. Um, our particular program, if you as the patient want to call back, that's perfectly fine, but the organized program is uh, for calls. So let's talk about those medications real quick. Which particular medicines currently show some evidence that they help people to quit smoking? Okay. So um, all of the various different forms of nicotine, and there are many. There's a patch. There's gum. Um, there are uh, inhalers. Uh, there is a nasal spray, which we don't have any experience with at Kaiser. And then they have lozenges that's basically uh, nicotine candy. Uh, they all do pretty much the same thing. They give you nicotine. When I deal with a patient that I don't know very well, I'm perfectly happy to give nicotine because they're getting nicotine already, and I know I'm not going to hurt them with the nicotine that I'm giving. Now, this is really important, what I'm about to say, because people look at me and they have this funny look on their face and they go, wait a minute, doc, you're asking me to give up my nicotine in order to give me more nicotine? What sense does that make? And the real sense is that it's not just the nicotine, it's the 4,999 other poisons that you're getting in the smoke that are causing most of the problem. Nicotine does have some problems associated with it, but if you look at all of the toxicities in cigarettes, nicotine is not the primary one. But nicotine is what you're seeking because nicotine is what you want when you're smoking. So we give you the nicotine so you don't have that drive to smoke, and then we take away all the other poisons that are within the smoke. 
So if you never smoke, this is not a reason to go get nicotine, but just in a gum or a patch or a lozenge. But if you're a smoker, if you can replace the nicotine, you can decrease the cravings and limit the exposure to the other toxic chemicals. That's true. So then there's also um, a collection of other uh, medications. One's bupropion. Bupropion is uh, otherwise used as a antidepressant, but what's interesting is all the other antidepressants don't work for smoking. Don't ask me why. Nobody knows the answer to this. And um, then there is a, uh, a newer medication, varenicline, also known as Chantix. And the numbers on varenicline are turning out to be pretty good. And what it does is it stimulates your nicotine receptors and it blocks them at the same time. And through some magic in this regard, it decreases your uh, will to smoke. None of these medications and nothing comes without some potential side effects. Now, how often does it work? I mean, what are, what are the statistics on how frequently somebody can really quit smoking? Um, a uh, unmarshal, in other words, if you just try to quit cold turkey, the numbers, that doesn't mean that you can't do it, uh, who's listening to this program. Uh, actually, I used to smoke, and that's how I did it. But the numbers are about 5% uh, likelihood of success. If you use nicotine products and these other medications, the numbers are somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, depending. If you do it with counseling together, a good program should have a success rate of about 20 to 30 percent. That still means that about 70 percent of people will still continue to smoke. That doesn't mean that just because you failed once that you're going to fail every time. So you can try as you – know, you can continue to try. It's very important to understand that there is no group – of any kind of patient that has ever been studied that hasn't benefited from quitting smoking. It doesn't matter how old, it doesn't matter how sick, it doesn't matter how frail. Um, we know this to be true, and we have a lot of data to support that. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about e-cigarettes for a moment, because they may be a helpful adjunct to quitting smoking for some folks. There isn't a whole lot of data because they haven't been around for a long time. But if you were to have somebody come to you and say, I'm a smoker, I'm having trouble quitting. And I want to use some sort of device, and I have this great e-cigarette. Could somebody use that to help them quit smoking? Is that a good niche market for e-cigarettes? Um, so at Kaiser, and I would say in the rest of medicine, we like to practice what we call evidence-based medicine. That means that we have evidence to support just about everything that we say. So from an evidence-based medicine perspective, we don't know enough about e-cigarettes to be able to say that. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't evidence coming out, and um, there's a lot of it. But the quality of the evidence gets better as things get older. So, for example, we have been very seriously studying tobacco for about 75 years. We have been very seriously studying e-cigs for probably three or four. There are a couple of studies that show it might help as an adjunct, there are other studies that show it doesn't help at all. This I can say about e-cigs. Number one, uh, what we've taught our medical staff is um, e-cigarettes are not smoking. It's tobacco use, but it's not smoking. And the way that I present this in public is to say, well, um, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but I know what it isn't. Okay, that's number one. Number two, I've had in my practice, people who do succeed. Um, I've had people succeed quitting smoking with just about everything that you could possibly think of. The problem with e-cigs is that they're not very well controlled, which means the quality control of what goes in them is not very well known. And if you think that all of the data that we have on smoking has to do with essentially 
two flavors, which is plain and menthol. And now we're talking about a market in which there are literally 3,000 flavors. The ability to study all of those components is very difficult. So at this time, I can say I've had a few people quit with them. Uh, the other thing is if you continue to smoke while you're doing the e-cig and cut down, you're actually not helping yourself very much. You need to stop completely. Cigarette smoke is so bad for you that even one cigarette a day can cause heart disease. It can cause vascular disease. And this is an amazing fact. Four cigarettes a day is indistinguishable from a pack a day in terms of its effect on, the, on, on blood vessels and heart disease. So if somebody smokes four cigarettes a day or a pack a day, just as bad when you look at the side effects on their body. Well, on the on the vascular system. On so, the blood vessels. So it turns out that um, uh, cigarettes affect all kinds of different um, systems, and the threshold for disease is different in all of these systems. Sure. And it turns out that the vascular system is particularly sensitive to this. So when somebody says, I don't smoke that much, that's not really a good – that's not going to help their vascular system recover. Uh, probably not. Now, there may be other things. I mean, there are some diseases that are associated with very high intake. So, for example, believe it or not, if you smoke two to two and a half packs a day, you can actually create diabetes in yourself from smoking. So as you cut down all of these various different diseases, they begin to dissipate. So I'm not saying that cutting down has no value, but it, it has less value than people think. So, again, if you're doing the data deep dive, Cutting down, the studies that talk about cutting down don't really help in what's called all-cause mortality. In other words, death from all different kinds of, of um, problems. So really what we want to do is this Thursday, we really want to make sure that people get the word out. It's the Great American Smokeout. If you have any idea that you want to quit smoking, this is a great opportunity to take a closer look at it and maybe even start going from the pre-contemplative, contemplative to just taking some action. Well, um, the history of this is kind of interesting. There was a guy, Arthur Mullaney, who in Massachusetts in 1970, and he was essentially doing a fundraiser and he hated smoking. So what he, what he suggested was everybody don't smoke for one day. That was it. And then he said take the money that you would have spent on the cigarettes and give it to uh, the high school scholarship fund. That's how this started. Well, it had legs, and it continued. And by 1976, the California Division of the American Cancer Society got nearly a million smokers to quit for one day. Now, as a previous smoker myself, I can tell you, if you can quit for one day, you can quit. How many years did you smoke? I smoked uh, about seven. I smoked pretty heavily, about a pack and a half a day. And I quit my first week of medical school because I figured a doctor had no business smoking. <laughs> and I just quit. And that was it. Well, it was irritating for a couple of days. And, you know, uh, not everybody has this story. I was lucky. Well, and it sounds like, you know, it's come full circle. Now, as part of when you went to medical school, went into practice, and started taking care of other people, it became imperative not just that you quit, but also that you're now helping everyone else quit as well. Yes, perhaps that's my penance. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. It's your penance. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much, Dr. Nelkin, for coming on the show. You are a full-time vascular surgeon at Kaiser Permanente, and yet you've also taken on smoking cessation as a cause that will help to really help the blood vessels of everybody who quits, but also, in addition, hopefully someday not have as much business as you do because nobody will be smoking. Grand vision, no more smokers. I, I dream about it every night. 
Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and really just telling us the tale of how this whole entire process came about. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and we just heard from Dr. Nicholas Nelkin, Nelkin, vascular surgeon at Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we are going to talk with Dr. Daniel Allen and Dr. Chris Clem from Queens Medical Center, Head and Neck Institute, about what happens if you are a smoker or, for other reasons, develop a cancer of the head and neck area. What are the treatments and what sort of reconstruction is available these days? A lot of new advances have come across, and these are things that are now available right here in the islands. As always, you're part of this. You can join us at 941-3689. Toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. The people who prepare the news are absolutely astoundingly wonderful. I mean, they understand and they go in depth. And that's one of the things that public radio takes the time necessary to tell the story. And that doesn't happen anywhere else. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Sometimes the best way to stay safe is to take a couple of risks. Oftentimes, when we're trying to make ourselves safer, we're actually doing things that may make us complacent or take more different risks and end up having different types of disasters. That's the story of the financial crisis. I'm Kai Rizdal. Why too much safety can be a bad thing. Next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting and Sacred Hearts Academy. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're continuing our discussion. We just heard from Dr. Nelkin about smoking cessation, and we're going to talk today about what are some of the consequences of smoking, in particular, head and neck cancers. Now, not everybody who smokes is going to get one of these, and certainly not everyone who gets a tumor in the head and neck area get this because of smoking, but there is definitely a connection there. And if you are a smoker and set a date and want to quit, Fabulous, because you're going to decrease your chances of having these sorts of problems. But we're going to talk today to Dr. Chris Clem and Dr. Daniel Allen. They're both part of the Head and Neck Institute at Queens Medical Center, and their mission is to help people who are diagnosed with head and neck tumors to not only treat the tumor, but also work on the facial reconstruction that's required afterwards. Because we've had Dr. Alamon about a year ago, and we were talking about how the emotional emotional connection that we make with people is often associated with them having a face. And I know it sounds silly, but any type of distortion or disfigurement of the face can lead to having a different perception by other people out in the world and in society. And that's an extremely important thing that people who have suffered these sorts of cancer types really have to focus not only on their own recovery, but also on how they how they are perceived in the world afterwards. So I want to welcome Dr. Alleman, Dr. Clem. Thanks for being on the show today. And let's start talking about head and neck cancer. Sure. So, um, you know, head and neck cancer is, uh, is not something that we talk about a lot. Um, it's about the um, it makes up about three to five percent of all cancers in in the United States, and around four hundred people just in the state of Hawaii will be diagnosed just this year with a new head and neck cancer. Now, where on the head and neck is there 
when we talk about head and neck cancer, are we talking about like that little mole on your scalp or are we talking about some other bigger kind of a process here? Yeah, we're primarily talking about mouth and throat cancers. There are some other sites, obviously, that we take care of, skin cancers and thyroid cancer, salivary gland, but we're talking about the lining of the mouth and throat. And what would cause these sorts of cancers? Is it something that, you know, we talked about smoking. Are there other risk factors associated with these? Yeah, about 80% of all cancers in the head and neck are caused by smoking. So th- really, that is the biggest risk factor. The, other, the rest of them are, are, some of them are caused um, by something called human papillomavirus. Um, about 15% are now caused by that. And that affects certain subsites, specifically the tonsils and the back of the tongue. And that's now surpassed um, papilloma virus causing cervical cancer in women is the most common viral associated cancer in the United States. Would be this HPV associated head and neck cancer. That's correct. All right. Now we just had somebody who wanted to uh, briefly mention how they quit smoking. So I want to entertain that thought for a moment and then we're going to talk some more about the cancer-associated viruses and where in the body that occurs. Now, I hear we have somebody on the line who wants to share. Nan from Honolulu wants to share her thoughts on quitting smoking. Nan, tell me about it. What made it successful for you? Um, I smoked for 20 years, about a pack and a half a day. And 35 years ago, I went to a hypnotist. And I've never smoked another cigarette since. It worked. Fantastic. Have you told other friends about this if they happen to be smokers? I do. I tell people all the time, and I don't think anyone takes it all that seriously. But it certainly worked. It worked for you, Nam, and certainly reduced your risk of getting head and neck cancers, which is one of the things we're talking about today. Although they don't occur that commonly in the general diagnosis of cancer, 400 people in Honolulu each year are diagnosed. Well, I'm going to say Hawaii, not just Honolulu, are diagnosed with head and neck cancer. So good job reducing your risk, Nam. Thanks for sharing that advice. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, Dr. Clem, we're, we're hearing about people who want to quit smoking because you mentioned those percentages are pretty shocking of the number of people who you see with these mouth and throat cancers who are smokers. That's a pretty high percent. Yeah, it, it is a large number, and, and we certainly counsel all of our patients who smoke that they got to quit. Exactly. It like really, yesterday. Exactly. It decreases their risk of having the cancer come back even after it's successfully treated or getting a second cancer of the head and neck. So we're talking about this being associated with either smoking or we also mentioned HPV. And I'm curious, does the vaccine for HPV actually treat the sero or prevent the serotypes that cause head and neck cancer? Do we know that? It, it does prevent the, the same t- serotypes as in cervical cancer. Um, and, and they're very similar serotypes. Um, we don't know whether it's going to have an effect on the um, HPV-associated head and neck cancer yet. We certainly hope that those numbers over time will start to come down 10, 20 years from now when we start to see the results of the vaccine. Absolutely. Again, it takes some time. And we talked about that evidence-based medicine aspect. And that's that we've had enough time to do the research to prove that it makes a difference. And so although the vaccine has been available for a while, we really haven't seen an, an good enough number of people, particularly here in the islands, who have gotten it. In fact, Hawaii has one of the lowest rates of HPV vaccination, but we're trying to make some steps in the right direction to change that. So you talked about cancers in the mouth and cancers of the tongue and the throat. If somebody has a problem, can they see it? Could you physically look in your mouth and go, oh, that feels funny. Oh, that looks really disgusting or whatever. 
how would you describe if someone wanted to get in front of a mirror and look in their mouth, what should they look for? Well, it, it's really not so much as, as looking as the sensation. So people that, that should be concerned, people that have an, an ulcer or a sore in their mouth that doesn't heal after a couple of weeks. We all get those little ulcers that are that those mouth sores um, that last for a few days and they hurt like anything. But if that lasts for more than a couple of weeks, that's something you should see your doctor about. In addition, people who have difficulty or pain with swallowing, that's a change from their usual swallowing that lasts for more than a couple of weeks, they should also see their doctor. And then the last sign or symptom that that people would notice would be a, a painless lump in their neck. And we're talking about a lump that's about an inch or so in size um, that, if, it, if again, that lasts for more than a week or so, should go in and see your primary care provider. And that may need a referral to a specialist for further evaluation. What about your dentist? Yeah, and that can certainly be, um, for a sore in the mouth, that's an absolutely great person to see. Because they actually look in the mouth all the time and kind of really spend their whole day in there. Yeah. You know, so if there's something funny, they're going to see it. Does it have an appearance that makes it look different than the rest of your mouth lining? Yeah, usually if there is some type of a concerning lesion, um, again, like you said, the dental hygienists and the dentists really do get... You know, get a very good examination. And they're, they're both looking and they're feeling. If you notice when the dental hygienist is doing their exam, they put a finger in there and they feel around the entire surface of the mouth to see if there's anything that they can not only see but feel. And, and those are important issues when you're, or aspects when you're looking for head and neck cancer. Okay. So let's talk about if you get diagnosed with this kind of cancer. Is there a particular cell type or a particular um, way that we would describe this kind of tumor? The vast majority of this, these cancers are, are something called squamous cell carcinoma. And, and squamous cells are the cells that line the, the lining of your mouth and your throat, the same as your skin is squamous cells. Um, so that's the type of cancer that kind of those cells have a transformation into a cancerous type of cell, and they grow out of control, and that's really what the cancer is. And what harm can that do? So first of all, they can, as the cancer grows, they can destroy normal tissue around them. So a cancer of the tongue can grow into normal tongue tissue and, and cause the, the tongue to not work the way that it normally worked before. After that, the next thing is that those cancer cells can spread, most commonly to lymph nodes in the neck, and then they can spread to other parts of the body as well. And that's why you talked about a lump in your neck, because it could be a sign that you have a cancer. And if you don't feel it or see it in your mouth, it may just be because you're not used to looking in your mouth, or maybe there's something there that you just can't identify. But if it does go to the neck, that's an area of concern. And obviously, if it goes elsewhere in the body, spreading to the liver, spreading to the bones, spreading to the brain, there are places where this could have a huge impact. Right, absolutely. And, and we know that spread to uh, spread to lymph nodes... Um, really um, increases the stage significantly of a cancer. Any spread to, to lymph nodes increases it to a, a stage 3 or stage 4 automatically. So we're talking about advanced disease. And interestingly, this is one of the things that we're, we're finding with those uh, HPV-associated cancers is that they very commonly spread to lymph nodes when they're very, very small as primary cancers. So it's very common for people with HPV-associated cancers to pre present with very advanced disease. Sure, because they don't notice it till it's in the lymph node. And you said that if that's the case, then it might be a stage three or four. That, that's right. And that may be when somebody would be sent to you on referral. And what is your role? When you see somebody who has this kind of a problem, do they all need surgery? 
No, that's a, that's a great question. And and really, the, the first step is to really look at, at the patient and the disease that they have, what kind of function they have. Um, when we can catch these these cancers at an early stage, there, there are more options available typically. And we can often treat them with either surgery or radiation. And frequently, we can really preserve their quality of life with a very good chance of curing the cancer. So early stage is really important. When patients present later, which unfortunately the majority of patients here do present with later stage disease, we typically will treat with either surgery plus radiation or radiation plus chemotherapy. And typically this type of treatment leads to, to um, unfortunately, even with decreased cancer survival, it also has associated with it um, a, a much poorer overall quality of life and function. Why is that? Well, you, you know, the, the cancers themselves are more advanced, so they're typically involving larger amounts of, of normal tissue. So if, if a large tongue cancer is present, then that, you know, treating that tongue cancer um, typically will mean that, that that tissue will never be back to normal and never function normally again, whether it's treated surgically or whether it's treated with chemotherapy and radiation. Um, and, and then just the, the treatments themselves, having to remove large portions of cancer or even treat them with radiation and chemotherapy can lead to significant long-term problems with speaking and with swallowing and really cause significant disabilities in people. Now, Dr. Daniel Allen, we haven't, I haven't bugged you yet. You're in the other hot seat. Right. We talked a little bit earlier and even last year, and you mentioned that there may be a lack of awareness of what really is going on with these head and neck cancers and that here in the islands we tend to see people with more advanced cases. Why is that? I think you have to think about it as two problems. You know, nobody wakes up one day and they have a tumor. These tumors start as a single cell and then they grow. And so you're presented with a dilemma. You have a one centimeter little lump on your tongue. You can either go to the doctor and look at some expense and cost and pain and discomfort and you, you see this in your horizon versus just waiting and hoping that it will go. If if the idea that this couldn't be a cancer and that extra month or six weeks could be the difference between living and dying with it isn't a, something that's aware in the public's mindset, they won't go seek care at that point. And so it's, 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 it's partly lack of information and partly that's sort of a critical juncture where people need to become aware. We as Society for Breast Cancer have sort of self-examinations. We've sort of indoctrinated into people the importance of early detection. It's a huge difference in this. You know, a one centimeter cancer on your tongue is a 95% cure rate with a normal life without needing complicated reconstructions. A stage four cancer like we're discovering is a 40, 50% cure rate with a huge set of morbidities and, and problems for the rest of your life to deal with. But that difference is one versus four, three centimeters. But at that one centimeter window, you have to consider it enough of a problem to go seek care. And I, and I, I think that's something that is, is in general not something that the public is aware of. And, and part of what we've tried to do in our institute is sort of engender that public awareness, just like smoking cessation, understanding the risks changes things. And, and, and the easiest thing we could do to change the healthcare in this Hawaiian environment is have people come in earlier. The cure rates will magically change with the same exact treatment. We don't have to modernize medicine. We just have to get people in the door sooner. So what is a step someone could take now to make sure that they don't have any risk for a head and neck cancer? If they're concerned about it, if they've already quit smoking, 
what else could they do? Should they look in their own mouth? Should they feel around for rough areas? Should they get familiar with what their mouth and tongue are like so that if they notice a difference, they're more aware of it? I think Dr. Clem mentioned the idea that it's, it's sores and things that just aren't getting better. They need medical attention. So they, if you have one of those, don't be afraid. Get on it now. Right. And that your outcome will be so much better and in a sense normal if you can get that care early. See your primary care doctor. Get that referral. Get the answer to what's going on there sooner than later. Um, we have a annual sort of screening clinic, which is free to the public. There are lots of other uh, things. As you mentioned, dentists, oral surgeons commonly find these cancers. So if there's a concern, discuss it with them when you are at your normal dental visit. I mean, our, our goal would be to make some of the complex things we do obsolete by taking care of people earlier in the process. Do you see a lot of folks who come from some of the outer or outlying areas of the Pacific who might have an advanced situation because they don't have access to treatment at home? We've found that even between Oahu and neighbor islands, there is a gap. Um, and, and if you look at the stages where people have in their presentation, Micronesia and neighbor islands are not actually that different. In Oahu, they tend to present earlier. It's it, it simply those steps to get to a tertiary sort of specialist care. I mean, that's the challenge of care in this region of the world. And so we will actually, most of our really advanced stage patients are exactly what you've described. So Dr. Clem, let's talk about when somebody gets diagnosed with a tumor or with a cancer. And we're going to use cancer, I guess, because some, not all tumors are cancerous, but we'll be very specific. You're diagnosed with a cancer. What is the difference in a mouth cancer or a throat cancer between a stage one and a stage four? We kind of alluded to it, but let's go through the actual process of staging. What are those differences? It's based on size. It's based on any spread. It's based on elsewhere in the body. Tell me a, tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, each of the subsites in the, the head and neck is, is a little bit differently staged, but we basically stage them based on something called TNM, T for tumor, N for lymph nodes, and M for spread other wire. Metastatic disease is what it is. Um, so stage one and stage two cancer of the head and neck is basically just cancer in a local site that's fairly small. When it gets to be stage three, it's spread to a single lymph node in the head and neck, or it's gotten to be larger primary tumor. And stage four cancer means that it's spread to multiple lymph nodes in the head and neck, spread to other parts of the body, or is a very large primary tumor. And so if it's already spread to other parts of the body, then doing surgery just in one spot really isn't going to be curative because you have these other spots where the cancer is still active. Is that when chemotherapy and radiation take more of a role? So once head and neck cancer has spread to other parts of the body, which fortunately is very uncommon at, presenta at presentation, it happens less than uh, about 5% of the time, um, it's really considered very difficult to cure, and, and chemotherapy is really the only uh, treatment at that point. So before that, you have other options. Now, when you're doing surgery for somebody who has a head and neck cancer, there's this term that we often refer to in surgery called clear margins. What does that exactly mean to the individual who comes to see you to get their report after surgery? How important is that? Uh, clear margins, if, if surgery is something that's, that's recommended and offered to a patient, getting a clear margin is really critical. 
And what that means is that we've removed the entire cancer that we can see and feel with the naked eye, but also we've cleared um, microscopic tissue around the tumor. Typically, we, we aim for um, grossly, or when we look at it by the naked eye, about a centimeter or half an inch about. Um, by a microscopic margin, um, we use five millimeters as a, a clear margin, but it's incredibly important with positive margins or close margins, typically further therapy like radiation or even radiation and chemotherapy are often recommended. And that will that may improve chances with those close margins, but it 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 also leads to significant increased long-term disability, which is really what we're trying to avoid. And when you get those clear margins, that could mean that you're taking out some normal tissue. What are some of the changes that can occur in the appearance of the face in somebody who has a tumor that might be in their throat or in in their mouth? What what physical changes happen? Yeah, it really depends on, on what the tumor is involving to begin with. And what we hope and what we often can accomplish is that we can really remove tumors and treat tumors without significant obvious cosmetic deformities to the face or to the neck. Um, scars for um, incisions in the neck or the face often heal very, very well. Um, and that's not often the problem. It, it, it tends to be more functional issues like swallowing, um, speaking when parts of the tongue or lips are removed. So often the, the um, issues with appearance are, are not quite as much of a problem as those with function. Certainly, and if somebody can't, sm- can't uh, swallow well or they can't speak well, it changes their appearance to the rest of the world and their ability to interact and communicate. So that becomes a huge consideration. Absolutely. So really the key is you've got to get this diagnosed early and hopefully in such a small size that it can be removed without any major problem. That, that's exactly right. Earlier diagnosis and treatment leads to improved survival from a cancer standpoint and much improved function. And so risk factors, smoking, there's no good reason to smoke these days. So just if you do, really look at Thursday as the National Great American Smokeout. Really look at setting a quit date. We mentioned HPV as a viral association, which is important for people to know that, you know, we're now finding out that certain viruses, a particular human papillomavirus, is directly associated with cancer. And if you have any reluctance in getting uh, immunized prior to exposure to that, this is another reason why you'd want to evaluate that and get it checked out. And certainly if you get this diagnosed later, there are still some treatments and options for you, but it might be harder. Well, fortunately, with human papillomavirus-associated head and neck cancer, even though they typically present at a much later stage like we talked about, what's really interesting is that the prognosis is significantly improved over non-HPV-associated cancer of the same site. So two patients, let's say one presented with stage 4 disease that's non-HPV-associated of the tonsil, and the same, the similar patient presented with stage 4 disease that is HPV-associated they have significantly different prognoses. So, for instance, Michael Douglas is a a famous and and very outspoken proponent of head and neck cancer at this point, and he's he's an HPV-associated head and neck cancer survivor. Um, People like him who present with stage 4 disease have about a 90% five-year survival rate, which is very high for head and neck cancer. Why do you think that is? You know, we don't really know exactly why, but the the biology of the disease, even though it's still that same squamous cell carcinoma, the biology seems to be very different than non-HPV-associated disease. 
Well, and I think as we do more research and we learn more about what are these things that turn normal cells into these rogue cells that continue to reproduce and have all these genetic abnormalities, I think we'll probably discover quite a bit more about what turns that switch and makes a cell go from normal to no longer normal and what you can do to turn off that switch, if at all possible. So I think we're, we're moving in the right direction research-wise, but we're going to continue. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and we're talking with the Queens Medical Center Head and Neck Institute. We've got Daniel, Dr. Daniel Allen and Dr. Chris Clem here in the studio. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the reconstructive principles and what else can be done for those folks who are diagnosed with these particular challenges and how we can all help them to interact with all of us and not feel maybe as self-conscious or having as many difficulties by just having a little more understanding of sort of what they've been through. Now, if you've ever had a head and neck tumor or a cancer and you've gone through this procedure and you've gone through surgery or chemotherapy or radiation, we'd love to hear how that experience went for you. And if you have any advice for people who might be concerned about something that they notice in their body and maybe just a little reluctant to get it checked out. So we'd love to hear from you and you can join us at 941-3689, toll free 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Actress Joanna Lumley has a special love for Greece, especially the ruins. The immensity of those columns, and you think, how on earth did they manage to build one, let alone all of those? Tim Neville tells us about his surreal trip to a ski lodge in North Korea. A lot of the North Koreans don't even ski, so they'll just ride these lifts around and around and around. And explore historic Delft on the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m., following Fresh Air... The story of Tyke the Circus Elephant is the subject of a new documentary screening in Hawaii. Her rampage from Blaisdell Center through Kaka'ako in 1994 ended in 87 bullets and a lethal injection. But has the lesson of Tyke ended for Hawaii? Despite lots of work, over 20 years, there's still no ban on performing animals. We'll talk about it Thursday at 5 on Town Square. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Daniel Allen and Dr. Chris Clem from Queens Medical Center Head and Neck Institute. We're talking about head and neck cancers. We've learned that a lot of these are associated with smoking, but a fair percentage, about 15% or so, are associated with HPV, human papillomavirus, and it is a virus that we know directly is associated with cancer. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about what the staging process is for this head and neck cancer and what you do if you have to have surgery. And Dr. Alam, I want to bring you into the mix here. I'm, I'm curious because Dr. Chris said he does surgery to remove the tumor and you do a lot of the reconstructive surgery. Is it happening at the same exact time? Yeah, actually, the, the, while the patients are having one procedure done, we'll almost simultaneously be operating. Dr. Clem will remove the cancer and we'll sort of plan the reconstruction and we say harvest the tissue that we would need to reconstruct it and together kind of put the face or the throat or the tongue back together at the same time. So the patient goes to sleep with their cancer but wakes up with their reconstruction completed uh, in one setting. 
And that becomes, I guess, the clear margin aspect, the getting all of the tumor. Very, very important, Dr. Chris, puts a little extra stress on you because if reconstruction is happening simultaneously, you kind of have to make sure that you've gotten it all. So when somebody is having surgery for this, is the pathologist on, on hold and they're waiting and they're going to look at this slide immediately when you provide them the tissue to make sure it's all time to do reconstruction? Yeah, abs- absolutely. We um, literally, like uh, like Dan just said, uh, the he's ready to go with the reconstruction and we'll sit and wait for the pathologist to read those margins while the patient's asleep and while we're waiting to begin the reconstruction. So they do it right away. So it really is a team approach. Absolutely. All right. We've got a caller. We've got AJ on the line from Kailua. AJ, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for this program and doing this program every week. I enjoy it a lot. It's well, thanks service. for listening. I want to be a little bit critical, if I may. Um, the host asked the doctor earlier uh, why some people don't, why they, they delay coming in for a diagnosis when they have cancer and how they come in and it can often be at a later stage and it's harder to treat. Um, the important, important part that you missed in that um, is that so many people don't have health insurance in this country. and. Um, a lot of, and I've known people, and, and it includes myself, actually, at one point in my life, uh, I had no health insurance and I thought I had cancer and I was afraid to go in for a diagnosis because if I did get a diagnosis, I had no idea how I was going to afford to be treated. Um, now, fortunately, I, I, I don't have that and I'm old enough I have um, Medicare, but um, there are a lot of people that and I, I felt slightly you ducked the question because you didn't say a lot of people don't come in because they don't have health insurance. And a lot of people that don't have health insurance are lower-income people, and lower-income people tend to smoke because of the problems they have of being lower-income and maybe even the problem of not having health insurance. And as addictive as tobacco is, and I was a tobacco smoker, it, when you're worrying and um, you're worried about your health, you will actually smoke more even though you're doing your health in. So uh, I just wanted to bring that up. Um, I believe that every doctor in this country needs to continue to address the fact that in this country so many people still do not have access to, excuse me, health care, and hopefully one day we'll get it. Um, You may detect an English accent. I come from a place where everybody has health care. Well, and it's an interesting comment, AJ, that not everybody has health insurance. Luckily here in Hawaii, because of the prepaid health care act, a lot of folks do have health insurance. But you're right, it's not ubiquitous across the United States. And that may provoke some fear in people coming in to be evaluated. Uh, Dr. Allen? Yeah, I, I think that's a terrific point, AJ. And actually, I'm from the UK as well. So um, the, I'd like to make two sort of responses to that. One is, I think cost is a big factor, and I, and I did mention that in a sense, and that ties into what this insurance model is. I can tell you in the year plus that we've been here, though, we've never turned away a single patient for their financial reasons if they needed cancer care. You know, I think that shouldn't be a fear, even with the health care limitations that we have, that there are so many potential programs hospitals that are involved in charity care processes that, again, in my personal experience here over a year, regardless of your financial status, regardless of which Micronesian island you came from or whether you are from here, we really look at the care of the patient as paramount. And, you know, Dr. Clem and I are not in private practice. We take care of patients because we think it's important to do so. And and our numbers indicate that over, again, over a year and a half, every single patient 
I want, if you have cancer and you need care, come see us and we'll try to find a mechanism around that to be sort of the mantra of how we do this. If that is the perception in the public and that's one of the factors keeping people away from care, then they shouldn't think that way. Even from a strict utilitarian healthcare cost perspective, you come in early with your cancer, your care will cost 10 times less than you come in late with cancer. And so there are so many reasons why, from a financial side, from a public health side, from a healthcare side, early diagnosis and early treatment is important. And, and there are a lot of mechanisms for patients to get that financial assistance. Well, and it's an important point, and I think not any country throughout the world has figured out the best way to provide health care for everybody. You know, there's challenges to the U.K. system. There's challenges to the U.S. system. There's challenges everywhere. But, um, you know, certainly I hope that we're able to move closer towards more universal care for everybody. Just from the perspective of, you know, you go to medical school, you go to residency, you go to training. You guys have both done advanced surgical training, and you do so because your goal is to help people. And in order to be able to do so, all the logistics need to be figured out knowing that your doctor's there because they want to help you and they want to do what's best. And so it's a good point, AJ. It's a terrific observation, and hopefully in the future we'll be able to change that fact, and everybody will have an option to be treated for, for whatever medical conditions that they have. Now we have another caller on the line who had an interesting question. Uh, Christy from Kaneohe. This is, uh, is going to be curious. Christy? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I wondered about um, non-smoke, people that are, have quit smoking, but they're using nicotine replacement things, products such as lozenges and gum. I wondered if the doctors have seen cancers from people that have been using those habitually for maybe a number of years. It's a great question, Christy, because there's two elements to it, which is how to know if the cancer developed because of the previous use of cigarettes versus the current use of nicotine replacement versus is any type of nicotine associated with head and neck tumors or cancers at all? Dr. Tr- Dr. Chris, thoughts? Any association, just nicotine alone, without the other various chemical exposures from cigarettes? I, I don't know of any research that's shown that uh, nicotine by itself um, is, uh, is carcinogenic or causes cancer. Myself included. So that's an interesting question, Christy. The nicotine just helps you to not crave the cigarettes, and it's all that other stuff in the cigarettes that gets people in trouble. We know that there are direct carcinogens which change the genetics of your DNA and make a normal cell, a normal squamous cell in your body, do something really weird and start growing out of control. So it's not the nicotine, it's all the other chemicals that could cause problems. Now, nicotine is associated with other medical concerns, hypertension, palpitations, heart arrhythmias. Those are things that I might see in my office if somebody's using too much nicotine for replacement or whatnot, but not necessarily as an increased risk of cancer. So great question. I'm glad you called and asked it. Thanks for calling. Thank you very much. All right. We have another caller. We have Dana calling in from Kilauea in Kauai. Dana, welcome to The Body Show. Oh, uh, hi, and thank you for so much for putting your show on the air. I mean, uh, it's great just to hear you guys talk. I, uh, I'm i 61 years old, and about 15 months ago, I was diagnosed with HPV throat cancer and also male breast cancer 
within about a 30-day period, I had two different types of cancer. Wow. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, year. I uh, I can only say to anybody that's listening that has any kind of a situation on their body, be it a guy or a girl, especially for a guy, if you have any lumps on your breast or any anything going on on your neck or your throat, go to the doctor. And I tried to get in to see Dr. Clem. Unfortunately, uh, I live on Kauai, and I was kind of forced to stay here and take my treatments here. I had seven weeks of radiation. I had uh, a mastectomy and uh, throat surgery. And uh, it's just a, it's a long process you have to go through and very painful and very, it just takes a lot of time. And I'm still recovering now. And um, there's just a lot involved. So your show, I hope it reaches out to anybody that's got anything they think might be cancer to go to the doctor tomorrow. <laughs> have it checked out. You know, if you have insurance or you don't have insurance, try to go. Maybe they'll work something out with you. I was fortunate. I did have insurance. It still cost a lot of money for me to go, and I missed a lot of work. But uh, I'm still alive, and uh, I don't know. I just appreciate your show. So um, if I can say anything or you can ask me anything, I'm happy to answer it to you. I, I uh, can, can talk, and I can function, and... I'm normal. My only things I miss right now is I can't eat solid food. I'm on a liquid diet uh, due to my throat situation. It's been a year, and I'm still not really eating solid foods. It's all a, uh, a liquid type of thing that I need to do to sustain myself. So, Well, Dana, I'm, I'm amazed that you were able to really go through the last year, year and a half, and yet still be so motivational for other people that they should get things that they're concerned about checked out. I'm curious, how did you find out about the HPV throat cancer? What symptoms did you have that made you get that checked out? Uh, I, You know, it, it was difficult at times to swallow, but the most uh, predominant thing was on the left side of my neck, um, I had almost like a golf ball that appeared, and that happened in a funny sort of a way. I I had a hedge out in front of my house, and I was using a hedge clipper. And uh, the next day, I was lying on the couch, and I all of a sudden, I got this bump on my neck. And it basically was overnight, and I thought, well, maybe I pulled a muscle, or maybe I had a sore throat, but overnight... I got this bump, and I thought it was from using this hedge clipper. So I, you know, tried to ice it down and uh, just tried to rest, and I was extremely tired, but it just appeared overnight. I mean, it was amazing. It's uh, the way that it it happens. It's nothing that kind of comes on slowly, or at least for me it didn't, but it just appeared. 
Well, and, and uh, certainly if anybody else has the experience where they see a lump like that, even if they think it's from another reason, if it's there, if you're worried about it, get it checked out. And I'm so glad that you had the opportunity, Dana, to get that evaluated, to get your diagnosis and to get treatment. I'm curious, Dr. Chris, does this is this a common story? I mean, you know, could we have lumps in our neck that we just think are okay and then all of a sudden we're paying more attention whether it be because it's painful or visually you just suddenly see this huge lump grow overnight? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's not an uncommon way that people present. Uh, it, it's unlikely that cancer spread just overnight. What, what more likely happened is either there was a small lump there that um, perhaps uh, some type of um, something instigated maybe bleeding into a lymph node or something like that. Um, but that's more likely that uh, what made it enlarge. And a lot of times that'll be painful um, it, when a, a lymph node um, enlarges because of bleeding into it. And I mean, I could just imagine if you're doing something, either using your muscles or putting something near your neck to hold on to it, to do something that, you know, that could irritate it and could cause you to go, ow, this hurts. Would it be more likely that it would be painless enlarged lymph nodes that would be associated with troubles versus painful ones, or is there not really a difference? Now, most of the time, these are painless neck masses. Again, sometimes they will be painless, painful Excuse me, if they enlarge suddenly because of bleeding. But again, these, these are neck masses that are there for, for more than a couple of few weeks. Uh, and again, most of the time, they, they don't hurt. Dr. Allen, what can people do? to help those they love who are suffering with maybe some of the disfiguring changes that can occur having had surgery and having to go through reconstruction for head and neck cancers. What can the rest of us do? There's not, it's not as common as some other types of cancer, but what could other people do to support those going through this process? I think they have to understand that the cure of a head and neck cancer extends more than eliminating cancer cells. You know, it'd be like if a termite came into your house and you tore half your house out and said, oh, good news, you don't have any termites anymore. Oops, uh, there's half your house there's gone. There's half right. your house gone. And so one of the advances we have in terms of the care over the last 20 years is that the sort of multidisciplinary approach is that we cure it more holistically. The idea is to put everything back together. Now, that is just like a contractor coming to your house and building it. It doesn't happen immediately. Even though we do the surgery simultaneously, there's a recovery period, there's a rehabilitation period. Um, and there's a lot of sort of uh, psychological strain on the patient and on their families to kind of go through that adaptation process. You know, you used to have a tongue, you used to have a face, and now it's been rebuilt. And and a lot of technology is involved now from 3D printed models to microvascular transplants to all sorts of other things that can improve the outcomes to where our hope is, you know, you pass that grocery store test and people don't know six months later that you've had this big ordeal. But before that happens, you know, it's important to realize that it, it's just the cure isn't that you've been had cancer cells eliminated. The cure is reaching that final destination. And really getting back to where you were. I want to thank both of you. I can't believe time has flown by so quickly. We'll have to have you on again. But thank you, Dr. Daniel Allen, Dr. Chris Clem, Queens Medical Center, Head and Neck Institute. Really appreciate you being on air with us and sharing sharing advice for everybody to get checked out. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk some more about health right here on The Body Show. See you then.